You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 159, The Early War at Sea, Part 9, Finding U-Boats. This week, a big thank you goes out to David, Tyler, Jan, Moritz, Trevor, and Alejandro for choosing to support the podcast by becoming members. You can find out more over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. Over the last few episodes, we've discussed the actions of the Admiral Graf Spee, which, along with the Deutschland, occupied many Royal Navy ships as they tried to protect British trade from the German surface raiders. There was, of course, another threat to British trade that the Royal Navy was also prepared for, U-boats. During the First World War, the impact of German U-boats on British shipping had been a shock, and it took time before the proper changes were made to combat the German submarines. For example, convoys were not introduced until relatively late into the war. Then, during the interwar years, time would be spent by the Royal Navy preparing for the possibility of a future war in which submarines were a major factor. A core part of the plans that were developed were based around the ASDIC technology, which we would refer to today as sonar. This was a very powerful tool that allowed surface ships to detect and firmly locate submarines, but there were key challenges when it came to making it a powerful tool in naval combat. It had short range, it was susceptible to disruption, and provided low-fidelity information. All of these problems would be solved in time, and even into the modern day, things are still advancing around sonar. But in 1939, there were serious challenges to making ASDIC an effective part of an anti-submarine campaign. Unfortunately for British seamen, the challenges were not well understood, and so it was used ineffectively for a long time. I really like this quote from Britain's Anti-Submarine Capabilities, 1919-1939, by George Franklin, to describe this exact problem. Quote, The fundamental British weakness came not from a failure to develop anti-submarine methods and equipment, but from a widespread misunderstanding of what had and had not been achieved. The mistaken belief held in certain quarters that ASDIC enabled a dive sub to be hunted like a surface ship led to an over-reliance on patrol as a tactic. End quote. Fortunately for British trade, the Germans were having problems of their own, particularly around just getting enough U-boats into the trade lanes on a consistent basis. They simply did not have enough U-boats, and the attrition enacted on them by even marginally successful Royal Navy tactics was enough to cut their number even lower. This was true even though they had started their naval buildup way back in 1935 with the signing of the Anglo-German Naval Agreement, an agreement that the British felt was a necessary evil. The next four episodes will be dedicated to the U-boat campaigns of 1939 and early 1940, but this episode specifically will focus on the efforts of Britain to develop the technology and tactics to counteract the threat from submarines, and the German efforts to keep their communications secret 
via the Enigma encryption process, which would be a critical part of the naval war until it was defeated in later years. Britain's preparations before the war for combating the threat posed by German U-boats was kind of a mixed bag. It had some good decisions, some mistakes, and some unexpected challenges. In the good decisions category, the first place to start is simply that there was a good amount of time and effort spent on preparing the technology and manpower to detect and combat submarines. On the technology side, there was ASDIC, a known way to detect submarines that the, so that they could be attacked, so that they could either be damaged or sunk or honestly simply driven away from convoys. The goal was to eventually equip all destroyers with ASDIC, and then to build up a fleet of smaller trawlers and other dedicated anti-submarine platforms that were simple to produce and could still provide results. These anti-submarine ships, either destroyers or smaller, would then be used to guard convoys of merchant ships as they moved to and from British ports or French ports and to and from ports all over the world. Manpower was a little more difficult to handle, though. There were three major things working against building up enough qualified ASDEC operators and general anti-submarine officers who were well-versed in anti-submarine tactics. First of all, it was not a desired specialization. It was not part of mandatory training for officers, and it was also a new specialty. Starting with the first one there, anti-submarine work was simply not a sexy branch of the Royal Navy. There were big battleships, new and interesting carriers, cruisers that roamed around the world's oceans, fleet destroyers prepared for their lightning torpedo attacks, and there was a small fleet of old, slow, unsexy ships dedicated to anti-submarine efforts. The second problem was around mandatory training. Within the Royal Navy, the training regimen of young officers involved courses and instruction in many of the major areas of naval warfare as it was felt that it was good for officers to have at least a basic understanding of many aspects of the ships that they were serving on, even if they were later asked to specialize. For a long time, anti-submarine work was not one of those mandatory training topics, which limited the broad knowledge, but also made it more difficult to convince officers to commit to it as a specialty when the time came. The training program was eventually changed in the late 1920s, but the impacts of those early 20s years could still be felt when the war started. Training up these officers and getting officers to commit to a long-term specialty in anti-submarine warfare was really important, because anti-submarine work was a relatively new specialty of the Royal Navy, and this severely limited the number of retired sailors that could be reactivated in case of war. These retired sailors were a critical part of many Navy's plans, including the Royal Navy's, to mobilize at the beginning of a conflict, as they would bring with them experiences and skills that were often hard to find. Very few of these existed for anti-submarine work, because it was simply too recently created. The final area of preparations that deserve some attention is around unexpected challenges. The first of these was mentioned earlier, ASDIC was just not as effective as hoped and would experience challenges as it was rolled out on the sort of scale that would be required by the war. This was exacerbated by the demands placed on the Royal Navy in the years immediately before the war. Other episodes discuss the remarkable buildup of Royal Navy strength in the years immediately before 1939, but money was still limited, and when it came to discussions of increasing funding for anti-submarine efforts, or ensuring projects like the King George V battleships were completed, the larger projects often got priority. This tendency would drastically change as soon as the war started, but it would take time to undo sort of the priorities that had been in place 
during the mid and late 1930s. All of these challenges were then made worse by the events of the war, especially after the fall of France. The usage of French Atlantic ports completely changed the scope of the submarine war in the Atlantic. Suddenly, U-boats could range further, spend longer on station, and could more rapidly deploy to intercept convoys. This forced not just more protection of convoys, but also forced that protection to be extended further out into the Atlantic, which greatly strained the available resources of the Royal Navy. Regardless of any challenges, the faith of the Royal Navy in ASDIC was absolute, with a 1936 memo from the Admiralty stating that due to the presence of ASDIC on British ships, quote, the submarine should never again be able to present us with the problem we were faced in 1917, end quote. The origin of the word ASDEC seems to be a bit disputed, but it was a relatively simple device, which had a transducer, which protruded from the underwater hull of a ship and was protected by a dome. The control officer of the ASDEC device could then point that transducer in a direction, send electrical current through the device, which would send a sound pulse out of the ship. The reflections of that sound pulse were then analyzed as a way of determining if there was a submarine that had been hit by them. One of the challenges of the pre-war ASDEC setups was that they generally took a good amount of time to do sweeps around the ship. This was primarily due to the fact that the detection arc was small, only around 5 degrees, and this required them to move it 5 degrees at a time in each 5 degree section for 360 degrees. But every time a pulse was sent out, they had to wait before they went to the next 5 degrees so they didn't get any weird echoes. This meant that it could take several minutes to do a full sweep around the ship. Another challenge was detection range. The outer edge of the range of an ASDEC system was often just a few thousand yards, and that was in good conditions, although it would improve during the war. And even this range was a major improvement over what it had been during the early interwar years. But the challenges were not just around maximum range, but also minimum range. There was a dead zone around the ship, and while it was only about 100 meters, even at that distance, the submarine could still react to the presence of an attack uh, of destroyers or a trawler and try to dodge the depth charges that were probably going to be incoming. This meant that it was important to try and not be detected by the submarine hydrophone when lining up for an attack and then to launch that attack as quickly as possible. But then once the attack was launched, it generally took time for the ASDEC to become functional again because the system, you know, it relied on sound waves, and there were massive explosions under the water, which caused lots and lots of sound waves. Even with all of these challenges, though, it's important to state that ASDEC completely changed the dynamics between submarines and surface ships. Before its introduction, submarines often felt invincible, and after its introduction and widespread use, it was critical for U-boat captains to properly plan and react to it. A major way that this was done was through surfaced night attacks, because ASDEC was incapable of detecting surfaced U-boats, and radar was in its infancy at the start of the war, although again, that would rapidly change. In September 1939, radar was not powerful enough or precise enough to really be able to find and pinpoint the location of small surface contacts, like a submarine. There was just too much noise that could not be properly filtered. This did not prevent the Admiralty from believing that radar, either based on ships or on aircraft, could be powerful anti-submarine tools, which would absolutely be correct in later years. It would just take time for radar to kind of live up to this potential, and a lot of it was around fidelity and noise reduction and those type of things. One area of technology that had 
not seen much evolution between the wars was around anti-submarine weapons, and in 1939 the Royal Navy would enter the war primarily relying on the simple depth charge, the most unsophisticated of weapons, a bunch of explosives timed to go off at a certain depth. And it did function, it did explode, so I guess it, it worked, it just wasn't spectacular in any way. Given the various technology and the expected threats, there were many plans for how to counter the threat posed by German U-boats. On the completely defensive side of preparations, there were mines. Mines were the hidden and silent killers of the Second World War, and they could be very effective against submarines. And they had, in fact, sunk more submarines during the First World War than any other weapon. They were also not sufficient, because of course mines are good at protecting areas, but they are completely defensive weapons. On the complete opposite side of the spectrum were the planned hunter-killer groups that would be set up in wartime, where an aircraft carrier and then a collection of destroyers would be sent on active patrols in expected areas of U-boat concentration. The theory was that the combination of airborne assets and ASDIC-equipped destroyers would be a potent way of finding and then sinking submarines. But instead, they would turn into a debacle, with there being multiple instances where U-boats would be able to attack damage, and even sink the carriers. The aircraft carrier-based hunting groups would then be disbanded within the first year of the war. Another tool that was to be used was land-based aircraft of British Coastal Command, which were solid observation platforms. But there was little training provided to the pilots and observers, and there was just the general difficulty of spotting submarines from the air. Uh, the kind of the difficulties that were experienced, especially in suboptimal weather conditions, were, were discounted. The Admiralty also planned to dedicate most of the British submarines to anti-submarine operations. Finally, the most well-known anti-submarine tactic, and one that had been used late in the First World War, was the most simple, the convoy system. The official plans were always to enact the process of convoys, plans that were solidified and practiced during exercises during the 1920s and 30s. But that did not mean that the convoy system was not without critics. The common complaint about convoys, at least from naval leaders, is that they forced the Navy to dedicate a large number of resources to purely defensive functions. When ships were grouped into convoys, they had to be protected by destroyers or other anti-submarine vessels, but all these ships were tied to the merchant ships and were simply reacting to German actions. This was deeply unsatisfactory for some naval leaders who wanted naval resources spent on more proactive, offensive operations. But these critics were generally not able to change the mind of convoy advocates, and really the people who supported convoys at any cost were almost always correct. This was true even though at the start of the war, there were not enough anti-submarine platforms to provide the needed protection for all the convoys that were running. At the very least, it forced the German U-boats to funnel into the areas that were protected, which was even more important when there were not enough escort vessels to go around. When it came to protecting those convoys, the best setup was for ships to work in pairs to detect and attack submarines, because it allowed one ship to attack while the other was dedicated just to keeping contact with the submarine through ASDEC, which was always a challenge due to the ASDEC minimum range and the interference of depth charges. The escorts would be situated several thousand meters from the convoy in an attempt to provide a perimeter of defense, with the perimeter biased towards the front of the convoy because the forward movement of the convoy, especially fast convoys, was often faster than the submarines that were hunting them. So submarines kind of kind of position themselves in front of the convoy 
and wait for the merchant ships to come to them. If a U-boat was detected in front of the convoy, the merchant ships might simply turn away, and if this was successful, the escorts might not even be detached to attack the German U-boat, as it was often felt that it was more important to keep the escorts with the merchant ships to prevent another U-boat from being able to take advantage. If an attack was ordered, ideally two escort vessels would move into attack, with one of the vessels dropping depth charges in a centered square pattern. This was not always possible though, especially early in the war, due to a lack of escort vessels. During the early parts of the war, an entire convoy might be protected by just two escorts, so a proper attack against a U-boat would completely strip the entire convoy of protection. Now the good news for the convoys, for the escorts, for the British economy, was that there were also struggles that the German Navy was having. As I mentioned earlier, they just didn't have enough U-boats. And there were other complicating factors that made it even more difficult. You know, there was a lack of experience on the German side around U-boat captains and U-boat crews. There were very restrictive orders that U-boats were operating under early in the war, similar to the rules placed on surface raiders that we talked about a few episodes ago. And then there were also efforts by British intelligence to crack and read German naval radio transmissions, which we should probably talk about. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. A critical part of the war at sea in all theaters throughout the entire war would be signals intelligence. The ability of one side or the other to intercept and decipher the other's communications would at times have a drastic impact on naval operations, with the most famous maybe being Midway, the Battle of Midway, but there are almost too many examples to mention. But even without the ability to read the contents of radio messages, there were things that could be learned just from the existence of those radio communications. One of these was the location of ships, with radio direction finding being an important part of naval intelligence gathering dating all the way back to the First World War. Of course, radio direction finding is all well and good, but the crown jewel of all signals intelligence operations during the Second World War was to identify and crack an enemy's code, and therefore to be able to read their radio transmissions, and this created kind of an arms race to keep ahead of the ability of the enemy to crack your own codes while also cracking theirs. 
And this is where we kind of come to the most famous encryption mechanism of the Second World War, maybe one of the most famous encryption mechanisms in all of history, the Enigma machine. At its core, the Enigma machine was built around a set of initially three rotors, each with 26 contact points. Then these rotors would spin as the message was entered, with the first rotor spinning at 1 26th of the way around for the first character, and then it would spin 26 times for 26 characters, and then on the 27th, both the first and the second rotor would spin 1 26th of the way around, and then the first rotor would move 26 more times, and the second rotor would again move 1 26th, and then after the second rotor had spun all the way around, the third rotor would spin one time. This meant that every single time that the rotors moved, the electrical connections between them changed. This would cause lights on the machine to light up, with one light for each letter. So, let's say when the operator set the X key, it might light up the letter F. And F would be the letter used when communicating that message via radio. Then on the receiving end, the person would input the letter F, and the letter X would light up on their machine. The key on both sides was making sure that the machines were set up exactly the same, with the same rotors starting at the same position. Because as the rotors spun, the letters were constantly translating into different letters. So maybe the first time, the F would be represented by X. But then the next time, the F would be represented by a B. And it could be made even more complicated through the use of a reflector, which essentially double-encoded each letter, sending things through the three rotors and then back through the three rotors to come out with another letter. As with any encryption that's built around character translation, the most important piece of the puzzle when it came to the security of the encryption was around the number of permutations. And for the Enigma machine, this became even more complicated because each rotor could be wired differently. So if you put a different rotor in, say, slots 1, 2, or 3, the combinations of letters would be totally different. You just had to make sure that you had the same rotor on the receiving end of the translation. But as with any encryption that's built around character translation, the most important piece of the puzzle when it came to the security of the encryption was around the number of permutations. The math for Enigma gets very large very quickly. But essentially, if there are three rotors, and more would be added later, but at the beginning, if you start with three rotors, you start with 26 multiplied by 26 multiplied by 26, which ends up with 17,576 possible position combinations of the three rotors. Then each of the rotors could be moved to any position of the three, and since each rotor had different electrical connections, the order was absolutely important. So with three rotors, that resulted in six possible combinations. That's 1, 2, 3, 1, 3, 2, 2, 1, 3, so on and so forth. And that means we have to take the 17,576 and multiply it by six. So you're at about 105,000 possible combinations. Now, 105,000 is a lot, but it probably would have been manageable and would have resulted in Enigma being cracked quite quickly. But there was one more complication. You see, each of the 26 rotors could be started in any position, and each position that any of the rotors started resulted in a different output. This takes the number of combinations up above the normal numbers that we use in our normal lives, and where you start hearing phrases like million millions or thousand trillions. 
And there were also easy ways that these numbers could be increased even more. The easiest being always having more than three rotors and then choosing three which multiplied the number of options by the number of available rotors because it was impossible to know which ones were being used if you were not the German encryption officer. And the Germans would eventually start shipping five rotors with all of their Enigma machines, and then the people would move, you know, choose three based on a preset kind of plan. It was believed, and would be believed for a very long time during the war, that the Enigma, especially the three rotors with two additional rotors, was basically unbreakable. In, in a time before computers, the combinations were, at times, just too large. Now, honestly, the Enigma system was pretty incredible, and it was also very, very flexible because the encryption could be completely altered simply by having even a single different rotor. This is how the different groups within the German military would handle encryption, with each group having simply a different set of rotors and a different set of internal electrical connections, and also having different processes that completely changed the resulting values. This allowed each military branch and the government to all have different and mutually exclusive encryption programs, increasing the security of everyone. Now, after building it up like this, the story of Enigma is, of course, that it was eventually compromised. And so how did that happen? Well, it all started with message protocol. Rotor settings and starting positions were always set up with some kind of prearranged system, some sort of menu or time-based setup those types of things. But then when a message needed to be sent, it would always begin with a three-letter sequence, which was repeated two times, with it being repeated in case of bad radio conditions. The theory was that these three characters would always be random, but the humans actually using the machines quickly fell into patterns, just like people do with modern passwords. There were a lot of AAAs and ABCs, or three characters in a row, or in a column. It also became known that the first three characters were repeated twice. This meant that the first and fourth, the second and fifth, and third and sixth character of an Enigma message was always the same, which is the exact type of information that starts people down a path of cracking these things. Another challenge that would always be present in military signals traffic is around the fact that there are so many similar phrases and words used in all military communications divisions, regiments, objectives, those types of things. When And when something is repeated often, the possibility of it being decoded was greater. While these were problems for the Germans, it did not mean that the Enigma messages were sort of easy to crack. But there were times when it was possible. In fact, before the war, in January 1938, Polish cryptographers were actually able to decode most German Enigma messages even with a relatively small group of people actually working on the project. Unfortunately, there were two primary changes made to the Enigma protocol before the war that would take uh, Enigma back to being unreadable for quite some time. The first was the change to give every Enigma machine more possible rotors, and then to change them out based on some prearranged schedule like I was mentioning earlier. Really, this just increased the number of possibilities. The second change was around where the starting positions of the rotors were set. Up to September 1938, the rotors on a machine were set via prearranged settings for a message. But then, after September 1938, the operator was told simply to pick the settings at random and then transmit them in the clear at the start of the message before beginning the actual encryption process. 
This made it much more difficult to decode messages because it changed the encryption every single time, instead of on some sort of prearranged or periodic basis. Even with these challenges, though, processes were put in place that still allowed the polls to read some Enigma messages, although it became much more difficult. The first was an automated machine that used sets of 18 total rotors at a time and a total of 108 total rotors, and basically just allowed the user to essentially brute force the encryption. Another way that was developed at this time was through the use of large perforated sheets with horizontal and vertical columns of letters that could be laid on top of one another as a decryption tool. The problem was that there were 156 separate sheets of characters needed, and each sheet had around 1,000 holes in it. This allowed for a three-rotor Enigma setup to be decrypted, but it required a lot of manual work and preparation. Unfortunately for this method, and for the, the brute force method with the lots and lots of rotors, is that when you started getting up into having five total possible rotors, they started to be defeated just because the number of possibilities just got too high. It sort of became unbrute forceable, at least for the time being. And that's basically where things stood at the start of the war. The general theory of how to crack some of the earlier Enigma setups was sound in theory, but simply impossible to directly translate into more complex Enigma codes that were being used when the war started. Now, eventually, the British would be able to adapt the sheet stacking method introduced by the Poles to begin to read Luftwaffe transmissions in early 1940. But the naval Enigma codes, the most important for these particular episodes that we're talking about right now, continued to elude them. Part of this was due to the different nature of naval signals traffic, and part of it was simply that there was far less of it than among the other arms of the German military, like the Luftwaffe. Eventually, even the naval enigma would be cracked, though, but it would not be until August 1941, and after countless hours of work by British codebreakers, which is, you know, a story for another day. Thank you for listening to episode 159 of History of the Second World War. I hope you will join me next episode, where we're going to start talking about the plans for the German U-boat campaigns and the early efforts of the German U-boats to attack British trade.